Each man then took his post at their retire. So then these numerous hosts began to fire. The cannon on each side did roar like thunder, and youths in all their pride Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. <clears throat> so in this episode, I'll kind of jump right into it. Um, I think you know the the deal by now if you've been listening along to this podcast. Um, we are uh, going to get halfway through Parkman's uh, final volume of France and England and North America, Montcalm and Wolf, in this episode. So this is the third of six parts exploring this rather bulky, rather... Uh, uh, weighty book. Um, so I'll be covering chapters nine through thirteen in this in this episode, and it's it's a, it's a period of the war. I'm covering basically 1755 to 1756, um, where several significant things happen. One is you have a series of French victories that are going to lead to a increased mobilization of British forces and British efforts that are ultimately going to um, culminate in the, the, the seizure of Louisbourg and then Quebec in the final years of the French and Indian War. We also see the beginning of a global conflict as the Seven Years' War proper begins in Europe in 1756. So, um, so yeah, it's going to be a, a quick uh, summary here in this episode. Uh, in the previous episode, I, I talked a little bit about Francis Parkman Jr.'s historical context, and I'm still thinking about what to kind of add to that. Um, you know, he's, you know, I, I was looking at uh, some histories of, of the Seven Years' War, more recently published, uh, including uh, the selection in a, you know, in a history of colonial America. And I just noticed how little reference there is to Francis Parkman. Uh, he, you know, he's not really you know, the go-to guy anymore for, for this history. And I, and I think it's been sort of reduced to, to literary history. And I think that's fine. In fact, the editor of this book, of this volume, both of these volumes, David Levin, is an English professor. He's not a historian. And he wrote a book called History as Romantic Art in Defense of Historical Literature. Um, and, you know, I don't know what's quite in that book, but obviously I, I can appreciate um, looking at at history as literature, looking at history as, as epic storytelling. Um, you know, and I, I think this is, it's, it's right to compare this book to maybe, you know, and say this is the American gibbon uh, in the fact that it is looking at a titanic, a titanic collapse of a great empire, um, but it's doing it in the, in the U.S. context. And it's the first really great empire to collapse in the New World, right? The Spanish Empire would teeter on for another another century, right? Really another century and a half until it finally fully collapses. But uh, in, this, in the Spanish-American War, uh, the, the British Empire would, would hold on till later, but the French Empire would not survive this. Even Haiti, if you consider Haiti, by the time of the Napoleonic Wars, it, it's done. France, French America is done by that point. So it is the first great collapse of a, of a significant empire in the New World. And in that sense, this is on par with that in its, in its scale and in its approach. Um, 
and in its literary merits, I think. I think there it's, 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 that's where its value is. As a historian, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, place to reinterpret, you know, figures that get con condescended and criticized here. You know, you can go back and say, well, it wasn't quite that way. <clears throat> or certainly the portrayal of Indians has been reworked and revisited. Um, I was just struck looking at these books, how few, how often he gets mentioned. Or if he gets mentioned, it's really to say, oh, Parkman said this, but really it's something else. Or, you know, that's, a, that's an old interpretation. Um, but I, I kind of want to defend him just kind of in terms of his epicness and his, his ambition and the fact that he, he is the first historian of America to tell a story like this in, in such grand terms and which, uh, with such, uh, 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 and actually trying to do it with documentation, right? not just trying to tell these stories through poetry the way Longfellow, uh, Longfellow did. Um, but really try to, you know, do this as as academic history, but also with a degree of, of artistic flourish, and it and it works. I think um, narrative history has never fully died. In fact, I think it's still one of the more popular forms of, of history, especially biography. Right when you go to uh, a bookstore, if you can if you can still find one, if you go to a, a brick and mortar bookstore. Go to the history section. That's what you find, right? Biography, military history, and a lot of that military history is narrative history, right? So, um, still, it has its place, I think, in 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 literature, which is why I'm I'm looking at it in such detail in this in this podcast. So, anyways, with that, uh, let's let's jump into this, like I, I promised to do. Um, <clears throat> chapter nine uh, of Common Wolf is called. Uh, Driscoll. Now, Driscoll is the, the French commander. He's actually of German descent, but he was a French commander who, who was significant in the campaign that's mentioned in this chapter. And that's basically the, the capture of Crown Point. This is the campaign that's, that's described in this chapter. Now, as far as I can tell, looking at maps of the Seven Years' War, uh, Fort Crown Point was one of the southernmost, or the, probably the southernmost French position in the in the Hudson Valley area. So the position of it, it's up in the Adirondacks, right uh, off of Lake George, and it's it's right you know on the borderland of modern day Vermont and and New York. A major battle in the American Revolutionary War was fought here. Um, this was uh, the start. This is where Benedict Arnold's um, Lake Champlain campaign um, began. Um, so. This is, that's where the position is fairly south, and it's, it's in this disputed territory. Like a lot of upstate New York, you know, the, the clear borders weren't established yet. It was just, you had competing empires. This is the case with a lot of this frontier, of course. Um, and so this expedition against Crown Point, it wasn't fully successful. It took a couple times before the French finally abandoned Fort Crown Point. But it's the first of several battles that really started to pick away these French posts that are you know, in this frontier land. And, and by the time when Wolfe would launch his invasion of Canada and the siege of Quebec, these have been basically neutralized, more or less, with, with one exception, but more or less these forts have been, been neutralized. And, and we saw how important this string of forts was in the overall French kind of uh, political strategy of securing their, their empire in, in the New World. Um, so this chapter also talks a little bit about the mobilization of colonial soldiers and colonial resources 
during the war um, because you know prior up to this point it's been basically a story of defeat the uh, the defeat at Fort Necessity the Br- defeat of Braddock's campaign things we'd already went into in the previous uh, episodes um, but now is the time to really begin to uh, organize a colonial response to this to this war which was not going well in the early early months but basically there wasn't funding for war there wasn't uh, soldiers available there weren't commanders uh, Braddock was the closest they had to commander he died in the campaign um, and so this is what Parkman writes about this. <clears throat> so Shirley um, had proposed an attack on Fort on Crown Point to the ministry, and in February, without waiting for the reply, he laid the plan before his assembly. They accepted it and voted money for the pay and maintenance of 1,200 men, provided the adjacent colonies would contribute in due proportion. Massachusetts shown a military activity worthy of a reputation she had won. 4,500 of her men, or one-eighth of her adult males, volunteered to fight in the French and enlisted for the various expeditions, some in the pay of the province, some of that in the king. It remained to name a commander for the Crown Point expedition. Nobody had the power to do so, for Braddock was not yet come, and that time might not be lost. Of course, Braddock dies, right? So the commander here who kind of emerges is this guy named um, William Johnson, and he becomes the commander of this campaign. Now, I was rather interested in Parkman's description of the soldiers that fought in this war, it being kind of a working class army. And of course, to some degree, all armies are. Um, but these were not professional soldiers in the Americas. The, the kind of people that could be drawn upon in the colonies to fight were not professional soldiers. They weren't like, like England had. There was no standing army. They were just the militias. You know, and they would just volunteer for short periods of time. So um, there's a lot of rotation here. But it meant that a lot of the colonial population would have participated in this conflict. And a lot of the colonial population would have contact with British, the British. And many American historians have made a big deal of the tensions between the colonial forces and the regular British army forces as, as kind of a lead up to some of the belief in the colonies that were kind of culturally separate. We're not quite the same as the British. Um, but it was kind of a ragtag militia initially. Quote, the soldiers, had, the soldiers were not soldiers, but farmers and farmers' sons who had volunteered for the summer campaign. One of the corps had a blue uniform faded with red. The rest wore their daily clothing. Blankets had been served out to them by the several provinces, but the greater part brought their own guns, some under penalty of a fine if they came without them, and some under the inducement of a reward. They had no bayonets, but carried hatches in their belts as a sort of substitute. End quote. So, yeah, I mean, this was just kind of thrown together, this, this military force, from the farmers and, and from what they had. So eventually the battle was fought at Lake George. Uh, there was about 1,500 men on both sides, on each side, I should say. Uh, the British had some Mohawk allies. The French had some other Indian allies. It was a fairly bloody battle, but it led to um, the, the creation of of Fort William Henry, which was, gonna, was meant to really consolidate the gains of this campaign. Um, so uh, we even get the kind of the summary here at the end. The prophets of it fell to Johnson. If he did not gather the fruits of victory, at least he reaped its laurels. He was a, he was a courtier in this rough way. He had changed to the name Lac Saint Sacrament to Lake George in compliment to the king. He now changed that of Fort Lyman to Fort Edward uh, in compliance to one of the king's grandsons and in, comp- and in a compliment to another. 
called his new fort on the Lake William Henry. So, you know, these names like Lake George come from King George, of course, and these other names were established from other people in the royal family. So it's, he's, he's naming them, kind of honoring them. There's even a mention here that he started being talked about as the second Marlborough. Marlborough being, of course, the great um, British, uh, British general during the, the War of the Spanish Secession or Queen Anne's War. But it was the War of Spanish Secession where he did the fighting. He wasn't in the Americas during that conflict. So uh, kind of an, uh, this is the first major British victory in the, in the, in the French and Indian War, it seems. Uh, chapter 10 is called uh, Shirley Border War, and this, this involves essentially the effort to then capture Niagara. So geographically, this is a fighting to the farther, um, to the farther, farther west. Now, just as a as historian, I was really interested in the early part of this chapter where we get the kind of the narration, the story of a, of a girl named Anne McVicker, daughter of an officer who was left in Albany during the war, but he, she stayed with Mrs. Schuyler, who was the, related to General Schuyler of the Revolution. And so she witnesses some of the war and she's able to have some memories. And so kind of in a sense of sourcing, it's kind of a fascinating little sidebar that, that Parkman gets into about, the, about this, this one witness to the, to the war from position in Albany. But she remembers mostly as a peaceful, peaceful place, even though this war was going on around her. The source is Memoirs of an American Lady, Mrs. Schuyler, um, which apparently was, it was something she wrote when she had the name of Mrs. Anne Grant. Um, oh no, so such was the quiet picture painted on the memory of Anne McVicker and reproduced by the pen of Mrs. Anne Grant. I think that's the same person. Um, anyways, uh, this is about uh, Shirley's campaign to, to seize Niagara. And, but I, I don't want to talk too much about the, the campaign because there's something much more fascinating here, which uh, shows up on page 1071 of the Library of America version of this book. And it actually comes from the memoirs of Washington, who was in, 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 in this Niagara campaign. Um, and he wrote this. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read what Parkman says first and then feeds into the Washington quote. Um, his headquarters were in Winchester. His men were an ungovernable crew, enlisted chiefly on the turbulent border and resenting every kind of discipline as leveling them with Negroes, while the sympathizing House of Burgesses hesitated for months to pass any laws for enforcing obedience, lest it should trench on the liberties of free white men. The services was to the last degree unpopular. Um, oh, sorry, this isn't Washington. This is uh, Lander Carter, but anyways. Quote, if we talk of obliging men to serve their country, wrote Landon Carter, we are be sure to hear the fellow murmur over the words of liberty and property a thousand times. End quote. So there's kind of this tension, like basically conscription is being deemed the equivalence of a type of slavery, um, of which is, of course, uh, you know, the great irony of the American Revolution is people charting, charting for liberty while they're keeping a huge chunk of their population enslaved. Um, but it goes beyond that, and, and Parkman continues, the people were in a mortal fear of a slave insurrection and therefore dared not go far from home. Meanwhile, a panic reigned along the border. Captain Wagoner, passing the bridge gap of Blue Ridge, could hardly make his way for a crowd of fugitives. Every day, writes Washington, this is Washington, we have accounts of such cruelties and barbarities that are shocking to human nature. It's not possible to conceive of a situation in danger of this miserable country. 
such numbers of French and Indians all around us that no road is safe. End quote. So there's kind of fear on both sides about these people leaving home um, to, to serve long term in these campaigns. One fear of slave insurrection, because so many of these people did have slaves or were on plantations that had slaves. Um, and just like in the American Revolution, just like in the Civil War, these, a broader conflict in the Americas promoted efforts by slaves to assert their, their freedom. And of course, this fear is not imagined. Not long before this, in 1740, you had in South Carolina the Stono Rebellion, which was a major slave insurrection. Um, but the other fear is, of course, of Indian violence on the frontier. So it's, it's these two great evils of American history, slavery and the genocide of Native American people. And the consequences of that, right, the consequences of that in the creation and cultivation of a state of fear about racial others is all kind of summed up in that little paragraph. Um, so great stuff there. But so those little brief moments in which Parkman decides to deal with these more lofty moral issues of slavery and and the treatment of Indians, he doesn't tend to dwell on them. He tries to focus on his narrative. But they're there if you, if you kind of can, can find them. Um, more or less, though, this chapter kind of discusses frontier paralysis um, and uh, the overall uh, lack of any decisive victory in 1755 in the, in the frontier regions. Uh, we also get the Pennsylvania politics stuff. So if you're interested in Franklin, if you're interested in what's going on in Pennsylvania, at this time, uh, in the response to the threat, this is a good chapter to turn to. And what he says about Pennsylvania politics here is the Seven Years' War began to lead to questioning by the Quaker Assembly in Pennsylvania of the leadership of the Penn family. And Benjamin Franklin was on the more democratic faction. Um, Parkman writing, Benjamin Franklin was leader in the assembly and shared its views. The feudal proprietorship of the Penn family was odious to his democratic nature. It was, in truth, a pestilent anomaly, repugnant to the genius of the people, and the disposition and character of the present proprietaries did not tend to render it less, vex less vexatious. Um, so I think what we should be reminded of here is that even just years before the American Revolution begins, British North America was highly feudal in many ways. You still had a handful of very, very strong families. You have the Dutch landlords in the Hudson Valley. You have the Virginia planter class. You have even in Pennsylvania, which is often seen as one of the more democratic of the colonies, you had this uh, political dominance of the, of the Penn family. Um, and that's being fought out here during this war um, in, the, in the debate about how to fund and, and supply troops and, and keep the armies intact. So there's actually a fairly long section here about Pennsylvania politics, which I think is, is one of the most relevant sections in this part of the book um, about um, just on the broader history here, uh, the broader meaning of this war for, for America's development. So uh, next we have a chapter just called Montcalm. Um, and yeah, up to this point, Montcalm is not part of the story. We're about halfway through this book, actually, and we haven't met Montcalm or Wolfe. Um, in fact, I think the whole, you don't actually, Montcalm or Wolfe, I mean. General Wolfe's not really the commander till a year before or a year and a half before the fall of Quebec. So it's only that last bit of the war where Wolfe was in charge. He was there. He was in different campaigns. Montcalm was there longer, but 
you know, both of these people came after fighting had already began for, for quite a while. Um, so this chapter begins with the 1756 declaration of war, basically the, the direct declaration of war by England uh, against France and the broader war in Europe. So if you need that history of the Prussian goals or Austria, sorry, Austrian goals uh, in starting the Seven Years' War, it was largely about recovering this territory of Silesia and punish, punishing Frederick, um, Frederick the Great, for, for seizing it. Um, so this was initiated by Austria. But by this point, of course, fighting had already been pretty brutal and longstanding in, in uh, North America. Um, so when the war is declared, then we see the choice of sending Montcalm to, to the colonies, to New France, to basically be the commanding general of the French troops there. And then we get kind of the French point of view on what Parkman has been writing from the English or the British point of view about you know, the troops they have available, their funding, the supplies, just what kind of resources are available to them for the French case to defend their, their massive empire. Um, a little bit interesting here to military historians in the different types of troops here. Um, you have the troops of the line, the re French regulars from France, you've got colonial regulars, and then you have the militia. So just like the British, colonial British, you have different types of troops fighting alongside some weakened soldiers, essentially militia, others, the, 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 the colonial army, which we've already met throughout these books, but then the French also sent troops from, from France. But the, 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 the colonial regulars weren't that effective by this point in history, Parkman writes, uh, quote, the troops de la Marine had for a long time formed the permanent military establishment of Canada. Though attached to the naval department, they served on land and were employed as a police within the limits of the colony or as garrisons in the outlying forts, where their officers busied themselves more with fur trading than with the military duties. Thus, they had become quite ill-disciplined and inefficient till the hard hand of Dunksay restored them to order. They originally consisted of 28 independent companies, increasing in 1750 to 30 companies, the first, at first of 50 and afterwards of 61, 65 men each, forming a total of 1900 and 50 rank and file. Um, and then more were added to them. But um, there weren't that many troops they could call on. Uh, we get a census here of the male population of Canada. Um, you know, basically a fraction of what the British could could call um, to to um, to bear on them in those in this war, which makes the alliance with the Indians so important. So we get a little bit more here on the different efforts by the French to secure these Indian alliances. And it seems the main strategy that Montcalm embraces here is to secure as many forts deep into British territory or in you know far into the borderland and defend them or take British forts that are nearby. So uh, a lot of the fighting in the, you know, in 1756, 57, are these fronts, but they're either British offensives or even a, uh, some French offensives to secure forts, like Fort Ticonderoga um, was, was one of the most important. So we'll jump right into Oswego, chapter 12, Oswego, 1756. Uh, maybe one of the greatest uh, French victories in the war. So this campaign was led directly by General Montcalm. And so the British had this fort at Fort Oswego. It's the same place that Oswego is, is today. In fact, uh, the, the Parkman goes so far as to say this is the greatest um, 
French victory in all of American history. Um, for the cost of 30 dead or wounded, the British lost um, 80 to 150 casualties and 1,700 captured. That included some non-combatants, but basically, you know, a, a size of troops, this, the size of the entire like colonial French army at the time. Right? We just saw it was less than 2,000 people. So, you know, a massive blower. The, the Massachusetts organized, what, 5,500 troops? We said, so this is like half of that. I mean, it's a, a major blow to the British in a well as like securing this fort. Um, it stopped Shirley's plans for uh, an offensive campaign up the Hudson based on you know, from Oswego as well. So it also stopped um, British offensives. Um, Parkman writes, it was the greatest, it was the greatest that the French arms had yet achieved in America. The defeat of Braddock was an Indian victory. This last exploit was a result of bold enterprise and skillful tactics. With its laurels came its fruits. Hated Oswego was been laid to ash and the would-be assailors forced to a vain and hopeless defense. France had conquered the undisputed command of Lake Ontario and her communications with the West were safe. A small garrison at Niagara and another at Frontenac would now hold these posts against any effort that the British could make this year. And the whole French force could concentrate on Ticonderoga, repel the threatened attack, and perhaps retort it by seizing Albany. If the English on the other side had lost a great material advantage, they had lost no less than honor. The news of the surrender was received with indignation in England and in the colonies, and the behavior of the garrison was not so discreditable as it seemed. The position was indefensible, and they could have held out at best for a few more days. They yielded too soon, but unless Webb had come to their aid, which was not to be expected, they must have yielded at last. Now, this is something Parkman does a lot, this kind of armchair generaling that we, we just read about. He, he's a fan of this kind of thing. So, you know, I don't know where he gets his evidence for that from. He's just sort of guessing or speculating on what could have been, but he does it quite a lot in, in all of his works, actually. Um, and the next chapter we have is called uh, Partisan Warfare, or Partisan War, 1756 to 1757. So with the fall of Oswego, Shirley's plans for an offensive in the region failed. And instead, what we get is um, a bunch of little vignettes about uh, various aspects of frontier war, um, and especially Indian warfare in the frontier. Because literally what he means here, Partisan War, is uh, the rest of the fighting in 56, 57 was more grassroots. It was in the frontier. It was Indian raids and a lot of this more day-to-day -day violence we've read so much about in, in uh, Parkman's histories up to this point. So that does it for now. Um, yeah, the next episode will cover 14 through 19 of Montcalm and Wolf. Um, six chapters that will cover the the capture of Fort William Henry by the French that might be the final great French victory of the war um, and then really looking at William Pitt and Pitt's efforts to really um, commit to this war and to, to victory and then finally the the, the successful siege uh, and capture of Lewisburg so kind of the turning the tide that will be the next uh next um, episode. The French high tide in the Seven Years' War and then uh, how the British turned the tide politically and militarily. So that's it for now. So I will see you next time as we kind of continue to plow our way through Montcalm and Wolf by Francis Parkman. See you then. Break, their ranks were flying 
brave wolf then seemed to wake as he lay dying. He lifted up his head while the guns did rattle, and to his army said, How goes the battle? Is a decamp